Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, August the 23rd, 2017. This is episode 2071 of the Survival Podcast, and I've got a great one for you today. It is interview day, and I've got a gal named Julia Mason on the line. This actually fits really well with the podcast I did yesterday, and I promise you it wasn't planned that way. We are going to talk about struggles of homesteading and what they've learned, her and her husband, that might help you too. Whether you want to do it big like they're doing it or small scale, doesn't really matter. And uh, this is a great interview. Uh, as I'm recording the, uh, the intro here, I've actually already conducted the interview. And I'll be bringing that part on for you in just a bit so you can hear from Julia. And this went fantastic. Uh, whenever I get interview requests, I always think, yeah, it's going to be a good interview. Sometimes they go okay, sometimes they go eh, and sometimes they're like a home run. This one's a home run. It's from people living the life that many of you guys want to live, and I think you'll really enjoy it in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is BulkAmmo.com. I say it all the time because it's true. Gun, no ammo, expensive club, or maybe a barter item. But a gun without ammo is basically not really a gun. I know the government and the law enforcement don't see it that way, but in the end, like it doesn't do the stuff that a gun's supposed to do now, does it? So you got to have ammo, and you got to train with that gun. To do that, you need ammo, right? So get on over to BulkAmmo.com. They have great prices. They have a lot of cool stuff. Man, the .22 long rifle is back in, and they got some great deals on that. They got everything else. Check them out today, BulkAmmo.com. Remember, they do offer a discount to members of the MSB. You can find that in the benefits section of the MSB. Next up, Self-Reliance Magazine from the people that brought you Backwoods Home. And I think most of us know by now, a 24-year journey, I believe, or longer than that. Um, from back, It's longer than that because it's, what, 2017. It's 30, 37 years or something like that. That, 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 that went. It's, it's huge. It was from the 80s till now. I can't even think anymore. Uh, but... You know, many, many years we had Backwoods Home, and it was in a lot of stores and stuff on the magazine racks, and it was a great magazine. Those folks realize that, like, the world is changing, and they, they've created Self-Reliance Magazine, and it is kind of the next step up. It uses a lot more Internet technology. It's a quarterly instead of a, a, a semi-annually, or I'm sorry, a bi-monthly. And uh, it, it's got a lot of great content in it. I mean, I'm loving reading the stuff about the guy that's building houses out of sheds and stuff like that. Uh, it's everything I loved about Backwoods Home and more. You can check it out at self-reliance.com. And they also do do a discount for you guys in the MSB. You can check the benefits section for that. On that, I want to remind you guys that I am doing a sale on MSB right now to celebrate the upgrade of the system. All of the bugs have been killed off in the system. Here's the deal. $25 a year instead of $50 a year, and it applies to your recurring billing. Use discount code UPGRADE. UPGRADE, just look at the regular word, not the, not the guy, the spelling of the not guy's name from the movie, Idiocracy. Though I thought about doing that, but I was like, nobody's going to remember how to, how to spell it. right? So just UPGRADE is the code. 
Uh, you can, if you want to pay by mail with cash, check, money, order, silver, just write it on the form, and we'll adjust things accordingly to that. If you want to play by, pay by cryptocurrency, when you do that, just uh, while you're going through the process, it'll tell you where to send the crypto. Just cut it in half when you do it. Everybody else, you can sign up with credit card or PayPal or whatever you want to do. I do want to say one more time, though, because I'm getting so many requests for this. If you have an active account, you cannot take advantage of this sale. I'm sorry. If you do it by mail, we'll do it. Okay. If you do send us a check or whatever for as many years as you want, we'll do it. But if you're trying to sign up online, here's the deal. I'm not being a dick. I'm really not. I know sometimes I can be, but I'm not here. If you sign up online today, and let's say you, you, you paid your renewal in June. When you sign up, you're going to create, if I, I actually have it fixed so you can't do it. I prevented you from doing it. But if you, if I did let you do it, you'd create a new subscription on your account. You'd then have two active subscriptions. It would start today, not when your one you already paid for ends. And when June came around, unless you canceled your renewal, you'd get billed, and you'd get billed again in August, and then you'd email me and tell me I'm an evil jerk stealing money from you. So I, 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 I can't, I cannot get around that from a technological standpoint. Trust me, if I could, I'd let anybody renew as early as they wanted to. It'd be great for business. I would love to offer this to existing people. It just doesn't really work that way, so I'm sorry. I'm sorry I can't do it. Please understand I'm not being a dick. I'm really not. I'm going to run the sale quite a bit. Um, I'm trying to expand the MSB, make it more accessible. Uh, so, you know, when you expire, probably wait long enough, you'll probably get one. I think most people think it's worth full price, though, which is what makes the sale price such a good deal. Let's talk about the year that was. The year that was the year 50 A.D. I have two today, one from David Vernon, one from Southpaw Ben. I have the nightmare is at an end. This is from David Verne. He says, in the year 50, there's a panic in Germania Superior, a Roman province on the other side of the Rhine. When raiding bands of Chatty cross the river, the legit Publius Popamonius dispatched legionnaires uh, and allied cavalry to head off the raid. The Romans split in two columns and ambush the raiders while they sleep. The remaining Chatty find their retreat cut off by the Pomponius, Uh, he was given triumphal decorations for his victory, but the legions were more excited about something else. They freed slaves from the Chatty, former Roman soldiers, who had been captured 40 years before during the Battle of Teutoburg Forest, which, of course, was a disaster for the Romans. My take by David Verm. Tatius doesn't say how the rescued soldiers felt after 40 years in captivity, and I try hard to imagine what it must be like to return home after that long. Enlisted soldiers weren't allowed to marry, even though many carried on unofficial relationships with these families acting as camp followers, so there was probably no close family to return home to except for cousins. Thus ends the last chapter of the disaster of Tittleberg. Uh This is what this makes me think of. What is it like today for someone that spends 40 years in prison when they get out, regardless of why they were there, especially that's getting out now? I want you to think about that for just a second, what it must be like. And I know they did terrible things or whatever. Maybe they didn't. Who knows? But 40 years ago, the year was 1977. Imagine being a person who has not stepped foot into society since 1977, what it would be like today. It also makes me think of the, the prisoners of war that came home from the Vietnam conflict. I think... The longest POW had been in captivity for 13 years. 
and they came home into the 70s from you know some from the 60s and there was a lot to change there it's it it's it, it's it's troubling in a way to think about what the psyche must go through with that kind of a shock and and it makes me wonder if we ever do perfect something like uh suspended animation where you could like basically go into a suspended animation and wake up 50 years from now and only have aged you know a day or two would anybody really want to do it would anybody really want to do it i don't know Next up I have almost a Jewish revolt. This year the Roman slave, a Roman slave is robbed while traveling in Judea. In response, soldiers are sent to arrest the leading men of the area the robbery occurred. While there to arrest the man, the soldiers begin to plunder the area. This quickly escalated when a Roman soldier found a Torah scroll and burned it in front of the villagers while shouting blasphemies. As a result, a large crowd of Jews confronted the governor Cumanus who had sent his soldiers, demanding that the blasphemer be punished. To calm the crowd, Cumanus had the soldier beheaded before the crowd. <laughs> My take by Southpaw Ben. Sorry for a week of absence. College started up and life was hectic as a result. During this time period, Judea was a hotbed of resistance and revolution, and the Jewish religion clashed with how the Roman Rome ruled the empire. We will continue to hear various events come closer and closer to lighting off the powder keg that was ancient Judea. It, you know what gets me is how how quick the Roman governor was to just behead one of his soldiers, who I bet he didn't really have that much of a problem with what the guy did until it caused him a problem, like a whole bunch of Judeans about to go complete ape shit and revolt, and then maybe the emperor has his head on a pike. It 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 tells you a lot about how people thought about the value of life during this time. They didn't have a very high value for it. And I wonder, I wonder, even though we seem to have a much higher value that we place on life today, you know, I don't know, 2,000 years from now, how we will be viewed for how much we actually value life. Something to think about is those future generations will be able to judge us far better than we can judge the ancient Romans. They'll have a far better record of what we have done. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic today. Again, I have Julia Mason standing by. She and her husband are full-time um, homesteaders, and they're running their own farm. They're doing all kinds of great stuff. They just recently had their first child. They've got livestock guardian dogs. Uh, they are really, really awesome people. They're making a go of it in a way that I think many of you want to. And with that, I want to say, hey, Julia, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to have you on. We don't get a lot of uh, female homesteader guests, man, so I think this is cool. Um, definitely a different perspective sometimes, and uh, sometimes goes into some areas that you know men don't really think about. Um, so that's <laughs> yeah. cool, right? We get some some balancing energy here in this uh, male-dominated thing. Uh, but kind of starting out, and before we get into like you guys and your homesteading and what you've learned from it, like. How the heck did you end up where you are? Like, take us back to like your space and out study hall in high school, and you want to yeah. figure out what to do with your life and how you end up as a homesteader uh, where you're at today. Yeah, um, I actually was homeschooled, so I was, you know, sitting in the living room a lot, spacing okay. out. Um, yeah, I've always been very interested in taking things from nature to like usable. Uh, my favorite book as a kid was like Back to Basics, the book from the 70s where it teaches you basically how to do everything you could possibly want to do in homesteading. Um, so I've always been fascinated with that. Um, always wanted to farm. My family uh, owned five, eight, 
acres out in uh, rural Oregon, and my parents are complete city people from Portland, and they bought the property well before I showed up, and so, yeah, I just kind of always grew up running around outside barefoot doing my own thing, and the youngest of six kids, so it's an interesting growing up experience. But, um, yeah, I, I, through high school, did an internship with a natural hoof care practitioner and learned to do horse hooves and supported myself that way through community college. And then uh, right before I graduated with my associates, I met my husband, and uh, he's a little bit older than I am. And I'm supposed to say he's the most awesome husband ever, according <laughs> to him. <laughs> Um, and he is. He's a really great guy. So we uh, dated for my last little bit of college and got married, and now we have a little girl and one on the way. Very, very cool. And and, and now you guys are kind of you know doing the homesteading thing in, in kind yeah. of a big way, really. I've been looking at your website and all. Um, but can you start out like where you guys are at, You know where you're from, and the challenges that your region poses for what you're doing? Yeah, so we live in Oregon on the western side, which is far less agricultural than the eastern side uh, for people who are unfamiliar with the region. Um, we live in the wet, wet part of the country in the winter, um, but a lot of people don't realize it actually gets really dry here in the summer. We had, I think, I don't know, maybe going on 50 days without rain this summer. Um, so we do struggle, mostly I would say our struggles are with the wet winters. It can be, A, very depressing, like extremely <laughs> depressing by the end of winter. But with livestock management specifically, wet weather just poses a lot of problems. It really runs animals down, causes foot rot, parasites in the spring, all sorts of things. So that's our biggest uh, environmental challenge. Um, and then in the summer, you hit your dearth, so you have to really manage your pastures to try and stretch them out as long as possible. And then we also have just an interesting <laughs> interesting political climate here, and uh, people are very – it's very hipster, uh, which in some ways is great because it's a market to serve. Sure. But it's it, it can be interesting for sure, uh, and – Politically, as far as like our county goes, it's very restrictive and, and a little difficult at times. But it, it seems yeah. interesting to me with that whole dynamic of, of of that kind of thinking politically. Is you mentioned they're a market? Well, they want the food, right? Mm -hmm. And they want to support local agriculture and all, but then they get in the way of it actually happening a lot of times. Yes. And it's like. Yeah. It's it's like being a dog that's – I remember I had this one dog, and he was a little wrong in the head, and he would be eating a bone, and he'd start, like, bending in a thing like he's going to scratch his ear, sort of, and he'd bite his own back foot as though it was <laughs> going to take his bone from him. And that's kind of how I see people like that sometimes. Like, you're, you're, you're attacking the hand that's bringing you the thing you say that you want. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, there's a lot of restriction on people and what they're allowed to do, although – in recent years, Portland, the, this area has come a long ways as far as cottage industries laws getting more lax. So that's pretty cool to see. Um, and like the raw milk movement has come a long way here, and that's been really encouraging to watch too. Um, we haven't been actively involved in fighting for that. We lived in Washington actually for a couple of years. Um, 
steering when that transition happens. So that was pretty cool to move home and suddenly be allowed to sell raw milk. So uh, it is getting better, but what we're really worried about in a lot of ways is just our rights being taken from us eventually. <laughs> uh, it's becoming like basically mini California up here in a lot of ways. Um, so that's that's a challenge, but it is what it is. And we really, it's a beautiful region. So we, we really like being here. It's hard to think about leaving even though, especially as we get established and my husband's building his contracting business here. So I think we're stuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I understand that. So... You know, you guys are doing this, like I said, in a fairly big way. Like, you're not just doing kind of like an urban homesteading thing where you're just producing for yourself. You're producing meat and things like that, and you're, you're producing things for market. So okay. kind of when you got into that, what, what is your background in farming, ranching, what have you? Yeah, so uh, like I said, my family is from the city originally, and they moved out to the country like 28 years ago, I think. And um, before I was born, and my husband's family is also, uh, they're very outdoorsy, but, you know, pretty city-minded, but they all come from agricultural backgrounds as far as, like, their parents were farmers. Um, so we just, we joke that we're a genetic throwback or something where we just both came out really wanting to be farmers, and uh, it's, you know, like an uncontrollable urge. Um, I... Uh, yeah, I was always wanting livestock. My mom was like, what is wrong with you? She's one of those people. I, I listened to your podcast yesterday and was like, oh, man, this is like a ton of the same stuff I was going to talk about, uh, where, you know, just farm failures, basically. And um, my mom is one of those people who is like, I hate gardening. It's horrible. <laughs> So it's it's funny. She just doesn't. She's like, "What is wrong with you that you'd want to go out and weed the garden? Like that's the dumbest thing ever." But um, what, I'm actually really fortunate. My mom and I have a great relationship, and uh, we are living on the same property right now. And so they've been really kind. My parents, as far as letting us stay with them and run their property uh, with our animals, and we lease a lot of properties in the area here. Um, Once again, we're really fortunate because it's a fairly agricultural area. I shouldn't even say agricultural. It's rural, and not a lot of people are really doing anything with their land because it's a lot of commuters. Um, so there's all this land available for free or for cheap for us to lease. So that's allowed us to really grow our livestock and learn our skills before having the, the money to put down into our own property, which I think is going to be really valuable for us. Um, so uh, my husband and I, I guess I should probably tell you a little bit about our getting together and getting started in animals. Um, when we first started dating about five years ago, uh, my family was freaking out about the end of the world. They were having that like, oh no, the Illuminati is going to take over <laughs> and we're all going to die. We need to save food. And it was yeah. just like craziness. And uh, really led by one of my brothers who was going cuckoo. And uh, Nicholas had, that's my husband, Nicholas, he had already gone through that phase. <laughs> and he'd been listening to you for a couple years already. And um, he just kind of was very gracious and I think was silently laughing to himself about how crazy we were all. But he, you know, so he, he was very like, okay, yeah, that's great. We should prepare, but you know, let's not go too crazy. Um, and so we got, I 
you know, my family all of a sudden was very supportive of my, like, farming tendencies. And because they were like, oh, you're going to be the only person who can feed us because <laughs> the world's going to end. Um, so I ended up getting some goats. And I had already had horses and done 4-H and things as a kid with um, with rabbits. I raised rabbits as a kid. That was the only thing I could afford to do. Um so I got goats all of a sudden, and Nicholas had goats, and that was something we kind of connected about, talking about. And, um, yeah, we were really bad at it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, we made a lot of really stupid mistakes initially. And um, before long, we're kind of the people who jump into everything headfirst. Um, and we were the same way when we started dating. We were like... Very quickly, just were like, cool, we're going to join our finances and be committed, and this is it. And so we put our animals together on my parents' property, and we're just like, we're going to do this, and very gung-ho, which is, you know, s sort of good. Um, we made a lot of really bad mistakes uh, that could have been avoided if we had just learned more first, but at the same time, I mean, trial by fire. So we, we've definitely learned a lot by doing a lot. Um, and, yeah, we just kept amassing animals. We just kept getting more and more things, and he'd get an idea. And Nicholas is a dreamer. He has a million ideas. He's super ADD. And I'm a doer, so anytime he has an idea, I'm like, let's go out and do it right now. <laughs> and <laughs> I would, that's kind of a good and bad combination because, yeah, a lot of times he has a really fun idea and I, like, make it a reality really quickly. And he's like, oh, crap, I wasn't ready to actually do this, but I guess we're doing it now. Um, so we ended up with a whole bunch of goats, uh, some cows and some pigs and chickens really quickly. And we did not have our systems dialed in. So uh, that's that was our beginning, I guess you could say. Um, I don't, I, I don't yeah. know. Uh, well, let's talk about some of your biggest mistakes, right? I, I know nobody ever really likes to do that, but I think we learned the most from it. Uh, you mentioned my show yesterday. Like, I focused a lot on that. And what's funny is I... A lot of times I don't really pay attention to like who my interview is the next day. I'll look at them by the month, you know, so I wasn't even thinking about this. So they do kind of meld a bit, though I kind of came from a different stance on it. But it is those mistakes that help people because it's really easy to like look at all our wonderful stuff now and, and leave that out, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I That's been something we've really wanted to avoid is uh, covering up all of our mistakes and just being like, look at how perfect we are. That's just not helpful to people. And, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of our mistakes, it's like, man, if somebody else had told me about their experience, I could have avoided this horrible, awful mess that I've created for myself. So I think it's really important to share and be honest with people. It's just hard uh, putting yourself out there. A lot of people can be very just like jump on you and say how horrible you are or whatever. But you know what? We're all beginners at some point and we all make stupid beginner mistakes. And so I think it's important to have grace for people and, and just, you know, bear with them. And we had amazing people in our lives that, uh, had grace for us. I mean, we were very fortunate to have a very knowledgeable and kind neighbor 
who seriously has saved our butt a million times. Like, she is awesome. Um, and she's taught us a ton. And I don't know what would have happened if we didn't have her a lot of times. Like, I'm sure half of our animals would have died. So, um, so that's been a huge blessing. But um, as far as our biggest mistakes since starting our farm, I think trying to do too many advanced or just too many things all together at once too early uh, without having infrastructure ahead of time. That's, that's a really big pitfall that a lot of people fall into is you just get really excited about things and you want to try a million things at once and you just end up doing everything poorly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So like I was saying, we had all these animals and um, we had dairy cows all of a sudden. Thankfully they weren't milking because, oh my gosh, we would have made even worse of a mess. But um, we were just really bad at nutrition because... A lot of the information, like you're saying, out there on the Internet is like, look at these amazing things you can do using animals and not doing it the traditional way. But it can be really misleading because, you know, you can talk about utilizing land and pasture and things, but that can be misconstrued by a novice as, like, your animals will be fine. Just throw them out on pasture and they should be okay, which is not true at all. (laughs) Um so it was just like pasture management is an advanced skill and we were not advanced and we had you know overstocked our land and and so the the nutrition was pretty poor and Nicholas was just very he didn't really know anything about farming I had a little bit more experience because I had uh, volunteered as a tech with the vet a little bit and done 4-H and been a little bit more exposed to farming than him and so yeah we just had very poor nutritional protocols for animals at first. So we had poor body condition. They struggled with keeping parasites down more because when their system is depressed, their immunity to parasites, which they do develop immunity as they age to parasites, um, was very low. So they were just struggling. And and when I met him, his goats were pretty sad looking. (laughs) In hindsight especially, I'm like, ooh, those were some ugly goats. Um, But, yeah, so just trying to do something way too advanced, which was feeding your animals off your own property. Um, And then it's also a lot of people, I guess this is more what other people do, and something that we did also is just buying buying feed the most expensive way possible, (laughs) which then makes you, like, very stingy with it because you're like, oh, man, I am a broke newlywed or whatever. Um, So, yeah, you need to be financially prepared to buy everything at once and buy in bulk. And that can be really hard. Even as recent as last winter, we didn't have the the finances to go ahead and buy all of our winter's hay at once. And it cost us thousands of dollars because we were having to buy it a little at a time. And it's, it really, really adds up. So anyway, we, um, we tried doing a fodder system. That's another extremely advanced skill, really. And we built this fodder system, and we were living in this tiny house on my parents' property when we very first got married, and we built our fodder system in our bathroom, which was a huge mess. It was just, like, wet, horrible craziness and a lot of time to manage it. And it didn't have the mineral balance that we needed. And um, 
So we, yeah, just mismanaging our nutrition was the biggest stupid thing we did at first. And we had, we ended up having uh, one of the dairy cows get grass tetany, which is when they get on fresh grass first thing in the spring. Um, it's like a magnesium deficiency that can just hit all of a sudden and it kind of paralyzes them and they go down. And we spent two weeks lifting the cow using straps and a structure that Nicholas built and a truck, pulling her up and lifting her for two weeks. And that was just a horrible experience for anyone who's ever done something like that. It was terrible and she managed to pull through. And we still have that cow, and she's in great health now, sort of. She's always been the one that we, and that was another another early mistake, not selecting for the best animals and not culling animals that should be culled, and then becoming attached to animals. She's the, the last animal, I think, that we have who really should go down the line because she's not a very productive animal, but she's, like, part of the family, which is terrible because it's a cow. Um, it's a lot easier to to feed like a dog or something who's just a pet than a cow. <laughs> sure. But, um, so yeah, trying to be uh, more intentional, I guess, and less haphazard. We started out very haphazardly. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, I, I mean, kind of just thinking about everything you said right there, if someone is getting into this at a larger scale, or even a personal scale, how important would you say it is when it comes to wildlife, or not wildlife, I'm sorry, livestock? Mm -hmm. If you're going to do livestock, pick one, do that one, get your system down, make sure it's working, and then if you want to do another one, go do another one. I mean, oh, yeah. I think we've all been romanticized with like leader follower rotational grazing systems and stuff like that. And they work fabulously, but only if the manager knows how to manage the animals, right? Oh, yeah, totally. I am a huge advocate now for do it the conventional way first. It's not ideal. It's not what your end goal is. But learn how to manage sheep or cows or whatever it is, one thing the way that the person you bought them from managed them. Um, and then transition them to something more advanced. Um, so, yeah, get them going healthy. Feed them the hay. Do whatever you need to do to keep them going strong and then develop your pasture systems. And you, it's just it's too easy for people to want to try and do these advanced skills and they get these animals and they, tr they want to do pasture rotation. And that's a lot of work on a daily basis. Um, and then they struggle or the animals don't get moved often enough and all of a sudden everyone has parasites and so it's like and, and use conventional drugs when you need to at first like just stick to a protocol get it going good and then try the more advanced skills and I agree with doing one thing at a time is pretty smart we're super bad at that we're still really bad at that we still have a million things going all the time and I'm like I am 32 weeks pregnant And our dog is pregnant. <laughs> we have we raised um, ABCA registered border collies, and we're gonna have a six-week-old puppy that we're gonna keep from the litter. Actually, we'll still have probably the whole litter when I go into labor. So <laughs> we're not super good at doing one thing at a time for sure. But it it is so much easier. We've really struggled with, at least I personally have really struggled with burnout with projects because I've tried to do too much. Um, so, yeah, burnout is a real thing for sure, and it's much better to get 
going and get things successful. And I feel like in a lot of ways, this is one of the first years where certain projects are becoming successful, like our rabbitry is more automated and it's so much less work and we're actually getting a lot of productivity from it and our garden is the same way. And I'm like, wow, this is so nice. Why didn't we do this years ago? Um, and had we only been working on one thing, we could have really easily. Um, so yeah, that's extremely important. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing that happens when you, you you do multiple animals at the same time and you really don't know what you're doing yet is this. So you let's say you do some chickens and some cows, and you, you're doing them in a, in a system. First of all, like getting that rotation right is important. You can actually cause disease transfer, but leaving that alone. Let's say, let's say you're doing them in two different fields, so there's not even a problem there. Mm-hmm. If you're having big problems with one, you won't even notice that you're having small problems with the other one until they become chronic and dangerous, if that makes oh, sense, totally. right? Because yeah. like you're so busy in alarm mode worrying about the cow being bloated, it's going to fall over and die, or you didn't know, like we didn't know the first time we messed with cows, that like they can kill themselves with acorns, they can kill themselves <laughs> with freaking, uh, what are those, Osage oranges, uh, like... There's so many things they can kill themselves with, and they can eat a little bit and won't hurt them. But, you know, you're going nuts trying to save the cattle, and some some other system's going completely haywire, but it's in that early warning area where it's most important you catch it, and yeah. you just don't, you know, because you're you're so busy in that. And that's, you know, I've learned from that, too, because all of a sudden you come back and go, oh, gee, this whole aquaponics system's about to crash. Uh, oops. <laughs> Uh, look at the nitrogen levels. How the hell did they get that way? Well, they got that way because you were running around like a fool, chasing mm-hmm. other problems and putting fires out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that is very true, especially when you're starting out because learning to spot health issues is a skill. It's it's something that takes a lot of time and intuition and just slowly, slowly develops. And a lot of, yeah, a lot of new people to livestock, especially when you just haven't even raised them at all, they just have no concept of what an unwell animal looks like. And I'm not saying that as like a a bad thing. It's like you just, you don't know what you don't know. And so it's really easy to miss early warning signs. I still miss things occasionally. So uh, yeah, it's, it's very easy to miss things if you're running around putting out fires all the time. And just even if you're not putting out fires, but your systems aren't developed, you're wasting hours every day doing things in a really inefficient manner. So, yeah, that that definitely is a recipe for disaster. Are there any common mistakes like you see other people making as you've got probably involved more with like community level stuff and, and observing what's going on around you? Yeah, um, the a lot of the mistakes are the same ones we made. So doing too many things at once, getting overly zealous and thinking you could just rule the world. Um, and yeah, buying things. I mean, this I see this a ton. People buy things for their animals. A, they'll buy really unnecessary things and gimmicky things. Or they will just buy everything by the bale or something like absurd like that. I mean, even if you're buying by the single ton, you're going to be spending a lot more than you should. But if you're buying by the bale you're getting gouged, like, hardcore. So um, definitely saving up, planning ahead, investing the money. And, and, and that's hard because storing 15 tons of hay is, like, not doable for most people. Um, and usually the minimum that you need to buy in order to get a good bulk price is around 10 tons. 
And for a lot of people, they're not even going to go through that in, a, in the winter because that's, you know, they're, yeah. they don't have enough animals. But you can do group buys, and I would highly recommend that using Facebook or Craigslist to find other community members to split semi-loads of things with you. That's going to save you thousands of dollars right off the bat. It really will. So I would definitely recommend doing things like that. Just being more proactive about things um, and, yeah, planning ahead. People don't think about – it's like they think that how much you're going to have to feed over the winter is, is a mystery, but it's really not. Um, and learning your percentages for body weight and what you need to be feeding everybody is really important. A lot of people overfeed, which is just a lot of waste of money, and overweight animals aren't necessarily healthy either. Um, so figure out your percentage. Figure out what an animal should weigh, and then if it's you're just trying to maintain that weight, you want to feed 2% of the body weight that they should weigh. Not necessarily what they do or at the time, because if they're overweight or underweight, you don't want to be feeding Just to be that. clear, we're talking ruminants here. We're not, you know, this is, you're being specific here. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's, that might be true. I I mean, I guess fowl, I'm not, not super good with birds, so... It might be a different, but for maintenance, for ruminants, or even, like, a lot of dogs can do well on a 2% of their body weight uh, range. Um, but, you know, it depends on the individual animal. And then, so you start, that's a starting place, but you also have to watch body condition continuously. And if they're starting to drop at all, you need to catch it early. You can't wait until they are, you know, skin and bones, because it's hugely difficult to bring an animal back from being underweight. Yeah. Um, so if you catch it early, you can, you know, even things out. But, yeah, once an animal's underweight, you have to pour way more food into it than you ever saved um, by letting them get skinny. So, uh, but that's only maintenance. And then for, like, pregnancy, uh, a lot of people do 3 to 4% of their body weight, and lactating is and maybe even higher depending on the animal. If it's a dairy animal, it certainly can go higher than that. So you can figure out ahead of time what you really ought to buy for the year and, and do things a little bit more financially smart. Um, and, of course, all of this fact it has to be factored in about what, what how much pasture you have, what the quality of it is, et cetera, because <laughs> there's places like I get that your pasture is probably okay, but not the super highest quality. Mine is just scrubby nothing. It's better this year it's ever been because we've had rain this summer. Um, mm -hmm. But then there's places where, you know, you look at what people have for their cattle and you go, oh, my God. You know, <laughs> I wish that was here. I, and, and, you know, you can say whatever you want about rotational grazing, improving properties, and it does. But there's still the reality that someone in, like, western Virginia – you know, is going to have a, if they properly manage it, a much more lush and nutritious pasture than someone, you know, where I am on a rock shelf or, or, or probably where you are as well. Yeah, definitely. We have uh, dearth in the winter and in the summer. Um, and, yeah, we try to save a little bit, of, like save a few pastures for the summertime that don't get touched. But even then, you're it's so dried out that the, quality of the feed is so low. Um, so I try to estimate what, how many months do I know I'm probably going to have to supplement feed and then do the, the calculations from body weight. And then I can pretty accurately figure out how many tons I need to buy. And I always try to go a little bit above in case we have severe weather or something so that we're always better prepared. I always estimate, overestimate inputs and, and underestimate uh, what we're going to produce so that I'm happy at the end of the year instead of feeling disappointed. 
Yeah, I, I, as you're saying that, I, I realize I probably should mention to the audience when she means by dearth is basically like scarcity, like poor pasture, no grazing, that type of thing. That's what you mean, right? Yep. Yep, exactly. Just, sometimes we throw words around and we don't think about the fact that <laughs> what the hell was that? Uh, <laughs> uh, so with all of this, like, do you have these these like functional challenges? And this is hard when you're starting out. Did this create any kind of personal challenges for you? Um, you know, maybe relationship wise or, or whatever. Like, because I think a lot of people go through that and they they don't realize that maybe it's a normal thing when you're you got something stressing you that. It, can stress your, your life as well as your, you know, your farm, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Um, I always joke that our uh, border collie has saved our marriage <laughs> because um, they, I don't know how many fights we've had about hurting animals, seriously. Like, we were, first of all, pretty bad at corralling animals and doing things and uh, to begin with, but we, I'm a catcher and Nicholas is a herder. So he cannot catch an animal to save his life, and I struggle with hurting because animals just run right through me, or they are, like, climbing on top of me. So we have had so many fights about that. It's just silly because it is a silly thing. It is. Um, and since, <laughs> since having a well-trained dog, I swear, like, we – it's – our life is so much better. It's crazy. Like, we – yeah, it makes things run very smoothly, but that's that's more of a, a comedic thing than than really like. I, I understand really though because I tell Darth, I, I tell Darth all the time, how are you this bad as a duck herder? We've had these things for four years, <laughs> and, and yeah. I, I think it's just some people give off different vibes. Like I just oh, look at them and they do what I want, mm -hmm. and then you you're like. Instead of going, gee, I have some kind of like gift or something, you're like, well, why the hell can't you do it too? You yeah, know? definitely. And it's just wrong. It's just, but you get in that mode. I think what saved our marriage is uh, unrelated, but it's the the little poles that you put on a trailer hitch so that you can back oh. a trailer up by yourself without somebody trying to help you. Oh yeah, because I know. I'm I, I need couldn't. to get one of those. He's always making fun of me for how bad I am at backing him up. Either so that, I've, I've been looking at the backup cameras. And I think I want to get one of those. I've been researching yeah. them. But just the ones, the two little, they're just two little sticks. They're high visibility. You stick one on the ball and one on the hitch. And when you knock them over real slow, you go out and put the trailer on. And, man, I'll tell you, when we had our RV, oh, there were moments. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'll do it myself. I understand that Well, sure. you do it yourself. But anyway, yeah, I understand. So anyway, I didn't want to interrupt you. You're, you're, no, you're, you're fine. Going. Oh, that's funny. Um, yeah, well, so some of the things, the more personal challenges that we have gotten through, um, for me personally, when we very first got married, I got on um, uh, hormonal birth control, and that caused, like, serious depression and, like, mental issues for me. Um, and I had no idea what was causing it, so I just felt like a psycho person. And that was really difficult. Um, so I've gone through phases of really dark depression, and um, we'd, we moved to a farm for a while um, to work for someone else. He was this uh, super wealthy individual, <laughs> and um, he didn't know anything about farming. Kind of a gentleman farmer, wanted to, to do, the, do the whole ranching thing, but didn't really have any common sense. So... We worked for him for a while, and that was a great opportunity. It allowed us to have health insurance when I had our first baby. But um, that was a little hard, uh, being in that environment. He was a little stressful of a person to work for. He's kind of, like, emotionally abusive. So 
there's been some dark things with farming that we've struggled through, but in some ways, um, I think had I not been farming, it would have been much worse because it forces you to get outside and get moving. And for a lot of people who struggle with depression, I think having like a dairy animal would really benefit them because you can't not do it. Mm -hmm. You have to go out and do it no matter how much you don't want to. And that in a lot of ways just sucks and you're like mad about it. But then you get out there and you get moving and interacting with the animals and it really does make you feel a lot better. Um, so that's been good. And then since not being on uh, hormonal birth control and having our little girl and everything, I it's like I'm a different person. I have not struggled with the, the crazy psychoticness <laughs> that we had to deal with. And my poor husband, he gets the brunt of it because, like, I feel crazy. It must be your fault. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's not unique to you guys. That's, that's unique to the human species, I think. Um, but, yeah, yeah, I mean, I understand. The dairy animal thing is interesting to me with dealing with depression because, and I think any animal that you could say this about would be the same way. <laughs> you You don't just do it, right? So, like... You know, when I let my ducks out in the morning, I go open the fence. Mm -hmm. I fill up their feeders. I fill up their water. And you just do it. You don't really have to interact, mm -hmm. right? But larger animals or certain animals or certain systems require you to almost ask the animal for help, I guess is a way to put it. Yeah, definitely. Like, if you don't have, like, if you're trying to check a horse's shoes, for instance, and you don't have mm -hmm. kind of that mindset in your, in your head, they won't let you do it. They actually can, I don't know how, but they can actually kind of sense what you're asking them to do. And if you're not asking, you're telling a horse, horse like, I don't know, I ain't doing it. I yeah. weigh a thousand pounds, you can piss off. But a cow, like you're asking this cow to let you milk it. I, I've not done that. That's not my thing. But I'd imagine there's some level of that. So it requires some level of a an interaction that I think yeah. is very beneficial because it's more than just something to do. It's something that you have to interact with, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. It's it's an emotional thing, and uh, like specifically for me, hand milking cattle. Because we've done machine milking when we worked at that other farm, um, and I didn't enjoy it. It was just the machines loud, and it kind of makes me feel disconnected from the process. But hand milking a cow, I feels very meditative, and um, yeah, your face is up against the side of this big warm animal, <laughs> and if if it's an ornery animal, it is a horrible experience. I've had a few of those. It, but, you know, nice individuals, it's a really cool experience, and it's very just meditative and rhythmic. And uh, for me, I like to sing hymns or something like that sometimes when I'm milking, and that can be really, like, good for the soul. But, yeah, especially if you have a good animal. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I mean, I think about that, and I go, well, I kind of would look at it the same way I do with my bees, right? Mm -hmm. If you open a hive and the bees hate you, the queen has to go. So if I have a cow that doesn't like to be milked and it's supposed to be a milk cow, it, it, its its name its new name is Burger or something yeah, like that. Yeah, right? like, yeah, definitely. You just can't have an animal that's going to be upset with you, or you got to find something else for her to do. Then maybe she's a cow that you calve with, and, and I, I don't know. I mean, that's no exactly. Cattle yeah, I have very little experience with. Who, she's graduated to being a beef mama because yep. I'm sick of her nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool. So. You know, with all this, what are some of the best choices you made regarding in, in your farming? Like, what are some of the things you did right, you know, and you're really pleased with in hindsight? Um, let's see here. 
So actually doing it, I think, is probably the biggest thing. Like actually just not mentally masturbating, as you like to say, and going out and doing it. Um, and that's kind of the opposite of my, my other advice of, you know, like take it slowly and learn about it ahead of time. Um, because, yeah, we made a ton of mistakes, but I honestly, for us, I think that was the right thing to do. I feel bad for some of the animals who have had to be our goat or our uh, guinea pigs or whatever, basically. But we... We have a much broader knowledge base because we've gone out and just done it. And we, we don't have access to land in a lot of ways. We have access to um, four and a half acres of family property, um, and not a lot of it is usable. Um, but we have created access by, you know, making contacts with people and being involved in the community and, you, you know, putting up ads even, being like, hey, do you have unused pasture? Um, so a lot of people complain of not having access um, to land. And I've even had, I've seen threads on the Facebook groups of people criticizing people who are renting for owning animals and saying, well, how irresponsible of you for trying to farm when you don't even own property. And I'm like, oh, well, My isn't it God. nice to be you? <laughs> Holy crap. And I'm That's like, like the are, most profitable you? model in animal ranching. That, yeah. that, if you look at the best people in the business, if you look at people like Joel Salton and Greg Judy, yeah, they own land, but the majority of the land that their quote-unquote farm is on is not their land. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and it's also, so it, like I understand if you are a renter and you literally don't own anything, I understand where they're coming from as far yeah. as like, oh, no, you know, everything could fall out from underneath you and you could be left in this big problem. And I'm like, okay, then so be it. I'll sell all my animals. Sale barn. Like, yeah, yeah, the exactly. rules of Greg Judy, like, sale barn. Well, what are you going to do? The the all sale barn. <laughs> but it's not the end of the world. I think it's much better to be out in the world getting experience than to just be sitting at home feeling sorry for myself that I don't have access to land. So, um, and seriously, if we hadn't started just doing it even when we didn't own anything uh we wouldn't know anything at this point and so and i you know feel like the last five years we've learned quite a lot so i definitely think it's worth it to just go out start doing something uh definitely starting small is a good choice so that you don't get uh in over your head or burnt out or financially ruined <laughs> um yeah, th there's definitely a financial aspect when you get into larger animals. That can be pretty devastating. Um, another thing that we've done that has been really good for us is staying in contact with the people we purchase our animals from. So we try to always find really successful people who are doing what we want to do to buy from as often as we can. And um, A, because... If they're being successful, then their genetics that we're going to be buying from them are probably going to be okay. Um, but also, they're just a huge resource of information. And I, I always try to reach out to them and say, you know, hey, would you be open to staying in contact and get, and get an email or something? And that's been huge for us, just getting wisdom straight from the horse's mouth, basically. Um, that's incredibly useful. I think that's better than any book you can buy, though I think you know getting lots of hard, hard copy books of things for animal husbandry is really important too. But, yeah, building your relationships with people. Um, I think uh, our lease properties has been 
Um, what's stepped up our game this year a lot is just getting these lease properties and um, buying infrastructure. So um, in the past, we've kind of tried to make do with nothing because we didn't have a lot of money, and um, we've really invested in our infrastructure as far as, like, having a trailer and having electric fencing or the electronet fencing and having enough of it that we don't have to move it every other day or something like that. So all of that has been very good. Slowly amassing our tools has been really helpful for us, um, and it's made everything that we do easier. And for us personally, having dogs has been really amazing. Um, the the herding dogs are an incredible asset. If you have did you self-train your dogs, or did they come partially trained, or how did you did you get them from stock that was you know like lineage of, of herding dogs, or yeah, definitely you need to if you're going to do herding specifically, they need to be from good genetics. Like that's super important. You know, not not any old dog is going to be an exceptional herding dog. Um, and even we bought a dog. Um, last year as a puppy and he uh came from a ranch they had like i don't know 2200 cows or something so big ranch drove six hours to get him he was only six weeks old um so we actually went to look at an older litter and we liked him better which was a horrible choice in hindsight um <laughs> and i swear that puppy was half anatolian like, he did not turn out right. He was a registered Border Collie. We paid good money for him. And he had no interest in herding whatsoever. And he turned out huge. So, uh, yeah, I, you got to be careful. And I would definitely think, say buy from a reputable person and buy from the best. Invest. Like, that's a big investment. Um, we were really fortunate with our first dog. I happened to cross an ad on, like, ranchworldads.com or something for a uh, smooth-coated Border Collie puppy in uh, northeastern Washington, or Oregon, yeah, Oregon. And so it was about a six-hour drive, and we went out there, and the guy is awesome. Uh, we still work with him. And he showed us all his dogs working, and that's really important. Uh, we looked at another litter before that dog, and it was obvious that the dogs were not actually working. Like, they maybe had the genetics to do it, but the people weren't training them. So if you can't see the parents working, that's a big red flag. Um, and he, yeah, he, had, he has intense dogs. And in a lot of ways, for people, our dogs, um, Whiskey, our first bitch, she would not be a good dog for a lot of people because she's too much. She's, you know, an intense dog. Um, some of her siblings are doing really, really well on the trialing circuit and, like, selling for a lot of money at um, the dog sales. But we're not that good. <laughs> um, so she is just finally getting finished for us. And she's about three years old. Um, we decided to go to a trainer and have the trainer teach Nicholas how to train her himself. And I think that was a good choice. Um, I think... Having them sent away for training is fine for some people, but it's it's been really good to know why we do what we do and how to correct things with the dog by training her ourselves. Well, um, I mean, and then you, what you're doing is you're paying a trainer. You can either pay a trainer to train the dog or you can play a, pay a trainer to train the dog and the person. Exactly. And that just yeah. makes more economic sense. Yeah, yeah. It maybe costs a little bit more because people are slower than dogs yeah. <laughs> mentally. Yeah. But... Um, 
but I think it's worth it. And for us, it's definitely worth it because we want to train more dogs in the future. So now we have the skill set. And I should say Nicholas more does than I do. I really love working the dog, but I'm not as good of a dog trainer as he is. Um, I'm more of a horse person. But um, so that that was a good a good choice. Um, but we really lucked into an incredible dog first off. And then that red puppy we bought last year, we actually just rehomed him to a family as a pet and just gave him away because it was like you are not working out (laughs) he's not interested he's the sweetest dog super super sweet which is also not a big border collie thing they can be very sweet but a lot of times they're more interested in working and he wasn't like that at all so um yeah definitely see the parents the parent dogs work and um probably wait until they're a little older than six weeks would be good so you actually know what they're going to look like because he ended up Looking like the first thing I saw when I got out of the car at the ranch was a big set of uh, Anatolian testicles. So I should have known there was a chance that the puppies might not be what they said they were. Um, yeah. Uh, now we're and then we also lucked into another dog this summer. Um, just somebody bought a really nice quality dog for their grandkid, and the kid lost interest and shut the dog in a kennel and didn't do anything with her for months and uh the poor thing she's got her teeth are kind of worn off on the back from trying to get out of the kennel um and we just lucked into her and got her for the price of a puppy because generally a year old dog is going to cost about twice as much as a puppy and she's also awesome awesome genetics so we're really excited to be working with her um so yeah we're, we're trying to start a little bit of a stock dog business over time um we like I said, we're very lucky. We very much lucked into good genetics. Um, and the guy that we got our first dog from has been really kind in teaching us a little bit about training. So, And we just bred to one of his dogs recently. So we'll have a litter of really nice dogs coming up here in September. So we're excited about that. Cool, cool. So what would you, what would you give to somebody as far as advice that was just starting out or was thinking about doing this? Oh... See here. I would say probably most importantly, find out what excites you. And that's actually a lot easier said than done. Um, we've had a lot of different kinds of animals, and I've learned over time what things make me want to rip my hair out and what things really make me happy and excite me. And it's going to be different for every person, but it's easy to look at what an animal can do on paper and think, oh, that's pretty cool. And then you end up working with them, and you're like, these are the worst thing in the world. (laughs) Like, for me, it's goats and pigs. I'm like, ugh, you are so obnoxious. Um, But, uh, yeah, so trying to find what it really excites you and focus on that. Finding mentors is hugely important. Read shit tons of books, like all the books. But um, don't get stuck just reading, obviously. Don't let perfect be the enemy of good. You have to actually go out and do things, too. Um, Like you said before, starting small. um, Don't get in over your head. Don't invest thousands of dollars in one thing all at once and just hope. Like, especially if you can invest the money, that's great. But if it's like, if this doesn't work out, I'm financially ruined. Yay me. Don't do that. That's a horrible idea because it probably won't work out at first. Um, and building infrastructure, um, if you can, building infrastructure before you get animals is ideal. Um, 
yeah, we've had a lot of struggles with just getting animals and not having any place to put them that's really solid and having animals get out all the time and issues with that early on. That's, that can be really discouraging and frustrating. So as much as you can build your systems ahead of time and even if you start your systems and then you get the animals, really put a lot of emphasis on getting those systems established because, like, for example, our rabbitry is – not really our main focus. It's just something we kind of have in addition to everything else. It feeds us, it feeds our dogs. Um, but when we first started it, we did everything the most inefficient way possible. And it took literally over an hour every day messing around in the rabbitry. Like it was so time consuming, filling water bottles, pulling crocs out to fill feed and just losing litters because we had uh, crappy wooden nest boxes and just all these things was super inefficient and it was just a giant money sink like you said the sunken expense or whatever mm -hmm. like it was totally what that was and uh, once we got our automatic watering system set up we got J feeders on all the cages and we got drop down nest boxes the whole thing takes me maybe five minutes to do all the rabbits in every day and we're just cranking out rabbits it's like a production line it's super easy very very low maintenance now um, so it makes a huge difference having things automated. Like you said, automate everything automation. you can. Yeah, <laughs> automate everything you can automate and then automate your automation, man. It's like, yeah. you know, it, the thing is, though, like you don't get that done if you're trying to do ten things. I think it always comes back to like that, like get the one thing done, get it to work. Then if you're doing it for profit, get it to be profitable. Then optimize the profit and then say, now, what other profit thing can we look at next, you know? Yeah. Because, you know, you can't – I, I can't do it, and I'm pretty capable as an entrepreneur. And I think one of the other challenges a lot of people go into is anyone can learn how to get a box of 100 chickens in the mail, stick them in a brooder, put a light on them, and get them three weeks old, put them in a chicken tractor, and move them around in the grass, and grow them into, you know, a full-size marketable bird at eight to ten weeks. Anybody can do that. There, it's, it's actually you'll screw stuff up, you'll kill some birds, but it isn't that hard. But now you got a whole shitload of chickens, and you got to find someone to buy them if that's your goal. Yeah. So like, oh, there's yeah. a whole other skill set when you start wanting to do something commercially, and if you're trying to do that and and you're not you're not kind of anchored down on your initial product and you're, you're kind of scattered in your marketing, you're going to have a hard time, I think. Oh, yeah. Selling is definitely the hardest thing for us. That's what we struggle with the most. And it's weird. Last year we had um, half, half rams, half ewes, and so we had a whole bunch of rams to sell, and nobody knew us. We had just moved back to the area, and, yeah, it was a really struggle, uh, a big struggle to sell everything. We ended up finally getting them all sold. Some of them we sold for, uh, you know, live weight prices, and that was fine. You know, that's built into the business plan. But um, this year we had almost all ewe lambs, and uh, we're trying to grow our flock, so we're not really looking to butcher any unless there's something wrong with them, whether they're too small or whatnot. And so it's like, oh, all of a sudden we actually don't have enough lambs to sell for the people that are returning from last year. So it's a weird thing to get used to. Um, and I, I think getting yourself out there in person probably is a lot more effective when it comes to um, food products than advertising online. I think online advertisement is actually fairly ineffective with food products in some – I mean, at least that's been my experience. 
is, and also when I see food ads, I don't ever click on them. Like I'm not interested in buying my food through the internet in a lot of ways, unless it's like I seek it out on Craigslist. So obviously having ads there and having online presence, having a website, something for people to come look at and interact with. But just thinking that you're going to go out and put up Facebook ads and you're going to sell everything is nonsense. Like you're going to have to get out there in the community or go to farmer's markets or whatnot and actually get to know people, talk to people in person, make that personal connection with people. Let me say something on that, like how, how powerful that is, just knowing all of your neighbors and mm -hmm. having them know what you do. So I have a neighbor down the road that raises cattle. I never even really thought about the fact that they raised cattle. I knew they did, but I didn't even know what they did it for. I didn't mm -hmm. know if I had no idea if they were you know raising them to a certain size and then selling them off or you know doing them as a calving operation. So I had no idea they were actually doing it for beef. I get mm -hmm. a text one day, hey, do you want to buy a cow from us? Uh, mm -hmm. and that was a whole text. I'm like, um, dead or alive? Because <laughs> right? this is a totally different answer to that question. And it turned out that they you know they they wanted to basically sell a, a butchered cow to me. You know, and, and they they do the thing where you take it down and you, they get paid on the hanging weight and you pay the processing. Uh -huh. uh, get around some of the laws. And I'm like, man, hunting season just ended. I have three freezers, and they're all not full, but there's a lot of meat in there. Uh -huh. So I, I texted him back and said, if you can find someone for me to, to split it with and take, I'll buy a half off of you. You know, yeah. and they, they were quickly able to find, they already had another person that was like saying the same thing. They're like, okay, fine. You don't even need to know each other. So yeah. they sent a couple texts and they sold a cow. Yeah, yeah, right? exactly. because they knew the names. Personal connection, and even posting on your personal Facebook page, like, "Hey, I have this many animals left that I really need to sell. Is anybody out there?" I've gotten a lot more response with that than just shouting into the void on the internet. Um, so, for sure, I think that's another thing that people. I another piece of advice while I'm thinking of it that I would give somebody starting out is. Do some freaking math. Like, people <laughs> don't want to do the math. And Nicholas is guilty of this because he's a dreamer and, you know, like super optimistic and everything. I'm a realist and maybe maybe a little negative. Um, I am like, cool, I want to do this thing. This thing would be cool. Let me do the math. What am I actually going to put into this? What do I actually need to sell my product for to make a profit? And then if it doesn't – and, like, we had talked about – uh, growing our lamb operation as our main frame of our business. And once I actually did the math, it was like, cool, we're going to need like 200 ewes. And that's like 400 lambs. That's a lot of lambs. Yeah. Um, and just the the prospect of selling that many lambs. Was, and, and we do our numbers like – we try to be realistic. Like we're not going to sell that many lambs direct sale. No. The majority, the majority, the vast majority at that scale is going to go to auction. Correct. And you're only going to get auction prices, which lowers your profitability per unit dramatically. Um, and if you're able to sell USDA by the cut at, like, farmer's markets, then your, your profitability per unit is, like, way, way high. So rather than saying, okay, we need 200 U's, taking into account the auction prices – it's way more profitable and doable on a much smaller property to say, let's do 60 ewes and seven cows and do a cow-calf operation and sell steers at, at the same, trying to, to market directly to your customer. Because mm. if you can serve two markets, you're using the same amount of customers and you're getting twice as many sales because, you know, somebody might want – a whole lamb, but they don't want six lambs from you, but they might be interested in a whole lamb and a quarter cow. 
Um, so by diversifying your products just enough, not to the point where you're like running around like crazy trying to keep track of everything, but just enough that you can really serve more than one niche for a person really makes a huge difference on, on the bottom line versus selling at a large scale to auction price. You know, that's that really cuts into your profits. So you have to be creative and doing the math. If I hadn't sat down and made the business plan, I wouldn't have had any idea and we'd be just growing our flock just mindlessly. So, um, yeah, you, you have to be very intentional about things and really figure out what it's going to cost. And creative, right? So, like, there was this guy I knew up in, in near Hot Springs when I lived up there, and he was killing it selling, selling beef and some pork. And the way he was doing it, he was solving a problem that people had, which is the same sort of problem I had, which is freezer space, right? Like, if you don't buy even a quarter beef and stick it in the upright part of a, you know, a, a two-door two freezer. You just, it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. So what he had done, he had worked out for a quarter and a half, and he had worked out like a quarter beef and a half hog, several different chest freezers that were fairly inexpensive, And he'd worked out with a guy what he would charge, basically go down to Lowe's, pick it up, and deliver it. And he was pricing his product with a freezer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've Delivered. seen people doing that here. It's genius. And then as soon as you sell to that one person, then you just keep marketing. Now, you don't have to sell them another freezer. Mm -hmm. right? You just keep marketing. And he, he was basically doing the freezer at cost. It was the co whatever his cost was plus the, what he ever had to pay the guy because he didn't want to be delivering freezers. You know, and then it was done. And, you know, the guy just show up and it's a freezer. It's not like there's an install. Where's, where do you want it? Bump, plug yeah. it in, see ya. You know, and then they go down and pick up their, 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 their meat from the processor. And, you know, they pay him for the, the same type of thing. They're paying him for the hanging weight and they pay the processor for the processing. Uh -huh. And that he, then he built his whole, his whole marketing database on those sales, and of course, once he got enough people to sell to at his scale, he stopped doing that. Yeah. You know. Yeah, that's really smart. And they and they get you by just illustrating how much money you're going to save. And it's true. Like, by buying direct from the farmer, even if you're like, man, this seems a little expensive, you look at that same cut of meat in the grocery store and you're saving money. So... Yeah. Um, people oh, just no, don't like no putting question. all the money out at once is the problem. But I think that's that's kind of the same with buying feed in bulk. Like uh, people need to be more intentional about having some cash reserves and investing versus spending. Does that make sense? No, like you're gonna, sense. You're gonna invest in your year's worth of hay or your year's worth of meat versus continually putting money out at a higher rate because it's convenient. No, I I completely agree with that. I mean that's. That's flat-out reality, right? So mm -hmm. how would you say, because, I mean, the real part of this is, like, enriching your lifestyle. How has this enriched your lifestyle, and what does it offer you? Yeah, well, obviously, I think the, just farming is a very wholesome lifestyle in general. It's active and healthy. Um, I have, oof, man, I have struggled with, making babies is really hard on me. <laughs> I, uh, my first pregnancy was rough and I don't know if I would have stayed nearly as active. I mean, this summer we've had a lot less work that needs to be done because we're able to pasture a little bit more than usual and I'm not milking for once. So it, I've struggled to stay active because we're not, uh, I'm not being forced to go out and do things as often. So I can't imagine if I didn't farm 
how lazy of a person I would be naturally. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I feel like it, yeah, definitely has just improved my health a lot. Um, and for our little kids, like Felicity, our little, our first one is two. She's just got such a cool childhood. I am like, you're such a lucky kid. You know, she knows all the animals and all the sounds and loves to, you know, play with them. And, uh, she's surrounded by dogs at all times. And, uh, she gets to ride her pony and it's just very nice, wholesome lifestyle for sure. Um, we also have really good quality food and a lot of pride in that. Like, um, I've always been a terrible gardener. I'm a, I'm an animal person naturally. And it, this is like the first year I've ever successfully grown a good garden where I'm actually producing significant amounts of food. And it's very gratifying, and I feel very proud of what I'm able to produce. Um, and uh, processing our own meat, oh, that was something I didn't mention in the struggles. Uh, processing our own meat, whew, that was rough at first. I um, was not raised to do that. My mom is like the biggest bleeding heart in the universe. And so that was a struggle for sure. Um, but it's now gotten to be something that I enjoy doing with my husband and uh, we're really proud of the fact that a lot of the food, most of the meat that we serve um, comes from our farm and is something that we've processed ourselves. Um, so yeah, it's just been a good, a good overall lifestyle. I think it also offers us independence. Um, for the time being, Nicholas is working at a, as a contractor, and it's been awesome, um, him getting his license finally, and he's doing the same work he's always done, but now he's just getting paid well for it, um, so that's amazing, but obviously fixing stuff that people have broken is not what he wants to do forever, it's not what he's excited about, he wants to be farming full-time, um, but Doing it, especially the way that we are, where we're slowly building up and getting lease properties, is allowing us to build in independence for ourselves slowly. And um, it's nice that he's self-employed, um, but you know, obviously the tax burden is a little worse that way. But but yeah, I think eventually, uh, if we are successful at implementing our plan to grow our lamb business and then eventually beef and our stock dogs that it'll it'll be pretty cool to be able to support ourselves from our farm um, in addition to a whole bunch of other things that we want to do um, but yeah I, I think just the independence of it um, the lifestyle our kids are getting an awesome childhood those are all big draws for me what are your future plans and what are your long-term long goals and mission here with what you're doing? Yeah, so our future plans, um, we're looking at potentially getting um, an agricultural loan to get property, which is, like I said before, something we wouldn't be able to do if we were just sitting on our thumbs waiting. Um, but because we are going to be able to show what we've been doing and that you know illustrate our ability to do it, uh, we might potentially be able to get agricultural financing, which is pretty exciting. Um, but uh, we're not sure whether or not that's going to be this year or if we're going to um, wait a little longer and keep leasing and save up more money. It kind of will come down to the numbers once we get closer to the time to make the decision. Just uh, try and make that call. It's hard because this area, um, housing prices are insane. Like. Uh, five-acre properties in our neighborhood are going for $500,000. So it's it's pretty crazy. And we, we have an advantage because people don't want large acreage. So 
Um, 40 acres is also $500,000. Oh, so, wow. So it might be uh, it might be a good time to buy, or it might be a terrible time. We we're we're trying to figure that out um, and decide whether we want to wait. It might just get worse. So, um, and we want to grow in the community and have a presence. And um, I, we want our farm to be somewhere people can come and visit. Uh, a lot of our hopes are for having direct sales. I mean, that's obviously the most profitable way to do it is to have like USDA cuts or a U-pick or something to draw people into the farm um, and do direct sales. So um, ultimately, yeah, doing meat and some U-pick to draw people in. And uh, we would love it if our dog uh, breeding training business got uh, off the ground eventually. But, you know, we're going to need a few more years of experience and and getting known in the community for that too, but um, and ultimately, the vision is mostly to have um, a community farm where we can promote permaculture and maybe teach classes. We've done a little bit of classes for like rabbit butchering and raising and things like that, but we want to grow that a little more and continue to get to know people and and reach out to people and uh, hopefully change the way people think a little bit. Very, very cool. Um, do you, you want to give people your website? And Is there anything that you guys offer that's not got to be local? Is there anything like the audience might find useful or what have you on your website? Yeah, I'm trying to uh, write pretty regularly and just about our experiences and uh, generally try to write something useful, not just like, hey, uh, my chicken laid an egg today, but <laughs> like, you know, just – what we're what we're finding out that works is generally what I like to try and share with people. So our website is dandeliandreamspermaculture.com. Um, we also have Dandelion Dreams Farm page, which is more just promoting our products and a little information about our dogs that we'll have for sale. Um, and we are going to be shipping dogs probably um, nationally just because they're very strong working lines and not a lot of people in our small region are really looking for that strong of dogs. So <laughs> we anticipate having to ship dogs. But, um, yeah, that's basically what we have online. You can find us there, um, or you can find us on Facebook, too, just to reach out. And we're always interested in talking to people and learning more if you've got things to share. And, yeah. Very, very cool. Well, hey, I appreciate you being with us today. One final question for you. Dandelion, Dandelion Dreams, where did the name come from? My husband is a dreamer. He is okay. uh, a funny guy, and he he loves the symbolism of the dandelion, like how it, it is the most underappreciated, even hated thing out there, especially in suburbia. And it's just trodden upon and ignored, and yet it has so many medicinal and useful things about it. It's a great plant. Like, I don't know why everyone doesn't grow dandelions. They're amazing. They're good for you to eat. They're great for your livestock. They can be used medicinally. Um, so it's basically symbolic of our whole idea. We want to take marginal land eventually. Um, the properties that we've looked at have been pretty degraded, and we want to make something amazing out of it. And um, that's basically the story of the dandelion. And, yeah, seeing value where no one else does is basically... The, the main ethic that we have there, and that's what the dandelions are about. 
Um, and he's a pretty whimsical fellow, so very, very <laughs> it's cool. a fitting name. Uh, he can take credit for the name. <laughs> very cool. Well, Julie, I appreciate you being with us on the air today. I think your advice might help a lot of people. I know there's a lot of people out there you know, wondering whether or not they can do this, and I think uh, your words maybe will encourage them to give it a shot and also maybe help them from making some mistakes. Um, I, I've always been a fan of learning both through experience and from people that already know. Uh, people always say, you know, experience is the best teacher. Well, imagine if you were about to be put under by a surgeon, and they say, don't worry, I've learned 100% from experience. I've never been taught by anybody. Uh, next, please. I don't want this guy, right? So I, I think that like there's so much value in hearing, you know, the, the the good decisions, the bad decisions, and the rationale. And again, I thank you for taking the time to be with us today. And I'm sure you got animals to go tend to. Oh yeah, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. All right, should be live in probably about an hour, hour and a half. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Well, hey, you have a great day, and uh, it was a great interview. I really enjoyed talking to you. All right. Thank you. You have a good day, too. Bye now. All right. Bye. Told you it was a good interview, guys. Great interview. Really awesome person doing really awesome stuff. We want to talk about their successes and their failures. We all learn from that a great deal. And uh, those of you that are wondering, can it be done, the answer is yes. And there's kind of a template there. Their website is pretty cool. I recommend you check it out, even if you don't want to do direct business with them, because they do a pretty good job of chronicling what they've done. And you find out real quick they're just regular people, and that's good, because when regular people can do something, that means you can do it too. We're not all going to be Joel Salatin's out of the gate. And Joel Salatin wasn't a Joel Salatin out of the gate. Neither was Greg Judy a Greg Judy out of the gate. Anyway... Uh, great interview. Really, really, really had a great time talking to Julia today. I want to remind you guys, if you like this show and the work that I do, one of the ways you can help support our work is simply by doing your online shopping when you shop on Amazon through tspaz.com. Just go to tspaz.com and take a look at all of the products that I've reviewed on Amazon over the last year and a half, and you'll see a lot of really great reviews there and great products you might decide you want in your life. But if you just get on over to Amazon and start shopping from there, you support our work no matter what you buy, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, it's easy, easy, painless way to support our show. Uh, today's item of the day that I have for you is a, pro is a book called Homemade Liquors and Infused Spirits by Andrew Skloss. Uh, I actually reviewed this back, I think, in January originally. and uh, In fact, it was like the, the first day back from winter break, January 3rd. Because uh, I had actually got pretty big into doing this over the holiday and making my own infused liquors. I did a show on it pretty quick after that. But I really love this book. I mean, this thing, this book will teach you how to make anything for a fraction of the cost. I'm talking like bottles of liquor you pay 30, 40 bucks for, you can make it for $5 or less. And that's even if you're not making your own fuel that accidentally spills in your mouth if you catch my drift. That's even buying a low cost vodka and low cost spirits to make it with. And that's, that's the way that the book's lined up. So if you're like, well, I don't have one of those magic Stephen Harris stills or one of those big giant milk can stills or something like that makes an accidental spill in your mouth fuel, uh, you don't need it. I mean, it, it's designed for people that are basically using spirits that you buy at low cost from liquor store. And I think this is a really great little bit of alchemy to learn. And there's some really cool things we can do from a culinary standpoint. We're not just talking about booze in here, right? Uh, we're talking about being able to use certain things as, as ingredients in, in cooking And as well as just having a good sip. Now, I'll tell you the truth. Like This is not the time of year where I'm going to sit outside on the porch and, and sip a little snifter of like a blackberry brandy or something like that. 
because it's 100,000 million degrees out there. A few months from now, when that weather gets cold and the grass turns brown, it might be nice to have some of that stuff made up and bring a little bit of spring into your life before spring's ready to show up. This book will help you do that. You can find it at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Just scroll down below today's episode and you'll see it. Or go to tspaz.com. You can do your online shopping at Amazon from there. And if you click on the other link, you can see all of the uh, all the stuff we've ever reviewed. And remember, when you're looking at my reviews, you can look down and you'll see tags like books, AZ, brewing AZ, cooking books AZ for this one. That'll pull up everything I've ever reviewed with one of those tags on it. So that's just a little, a little thing you can use to find all the cool stuff that I've put up there for you. Uh, next up, let's talk about our song of the day today. Our song of the day today is an oldie, but a goodie, as they say. It is Revolution by the Beatles. Uh, this is a song that I've always really liked. I want to read a few things to you off of song facts about this song. Uh, the first, th This was the first overtly political Beatles song. It was John Lennon's response to the Vietnam War. John Lennon wrote this in India while the Beatles were at Transcendental Meditation Camp with the Marahashi. Uh, Lennon told Rolling Stone, I had been thinking about it up in the hills in India. I still had this God will save us feeling about it, that it's going to be all right. Even now I'm saying, hold on, John, it's going to be all right. Otherwise, I won't hold on. But that's why I did it. I wanted to talk. I wanted to say a piece about revolution. I wanted to tell you or whoever listens to communicate, to say what do you, what do you say, this is what I say. Revolutionaries take different approaches to reach their goals. In 1998 interview with Uncut, Yoko uh, Ono gave her thoughts on Lennon's approach and how he expressed it in this song. She said, John's idea of revolution was that he did not want to create the situation where you destroy statues. You become a statue. And also what he means is that there is too much repercussion in the usual form of revolution. He preferred evolution. So you have to take a peaceful method to get peace rather than you don't care what method you take to get peace. And he was very, very adamant about that. End quote. So... You know, I mean, I know people have, a lot of people have very negative opinions about Yoko Ono, and I'm not exactly a fan of Yoko, um, but I do trust that she knew what John meant in his music. And I, I, I take that to be a very accurate reflection of what John Lennon was saying uh, and when he wrote this song for the Beatles, that being that you don't fight a revolution by tearing down statues, but by becoming one. I don't think I need to say anything more about that. And maybe when you hear this song this time, it'll take on new meaning given our current time frame. And speaking of you know things that happened almost 40 years ago, I wonder what John Lennon would think of the world if his life hadn't been tragically ended by a fan who he had signed an autograph for just, I think, a day before, if he was around today. I'd, I'd be interested to buy the man a beer. I'm sure it's below, above my pay grade, but if he was around, I'd be interested to buy him a beer and hear what he'd think about it. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Say you want a revolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. Tell me that it's evolution Well, you know We all want to change the world 
But when you talk about destruction Don't you know that you can count me out Don't you know it's gonna be Alright 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 You got a real solution Well, you know We don't love to see the plan You ask me for a contribution Well, you know We all do we what we can But if you want money for people with minds that hate All I can tell you is, brother, you have to wait. Anyone, anyhow. Don't you know it's gonna be? 